0: Welcome to Southbank Centre's book podcast, where you'll hear us in conversation with the people shaping arts and culture today.
1: If you want to hear from some of the biggest and most influential names in contemporary literature, then you're in the right place. In this latest episode of the podcast, we're going to feature highlights from another great event in our 2019 autumn literature season for your listening pleasure.
0: Just to let you know, there may be some strong language and sexual references. Good evening, and welcome to Southbank Centre's Queen Elizabeth Hall. I'm Debo Eamon, literature programmer here at Southbank Centre, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to Sarah Pascoe's Sex, Power, Money. We're really excited to be presenting this event as part of our literature season. For me, reading Sarah Pascoe's Sex, Power, Money was an interesting affair, as someone raised by a wonderful evangelical Christian pastor for a mother. Heterosexuality was never something explicitly questioned or, to be honest, questioning it was actively discouraged. However, as Pascoe's sex power money shows, the whole story is never that simple. Beyond beliefs and opinions, my mother's actual existence questioned heterosexual norms in what she chose for herself, how she raised her children and what she expected of the world. Chairing tonight's event is comedian and writer Deborah Francis White, best known for her podcast, The Guilty Feminist. Please join me in welcoming Sarah Pascoe and Deborah Francis White. Hello,
1: hello, hello, and welcome. Um, so we're here to talk about Sarah Pascoe, Sex, Power, Money. This is an incredible book. Uh, if you haven't read it yet, and you may not have because it's just come out, yeah. uh, nobody's judging you for not having read it yet, but I will be judging you if you haven't read it in three to four weeks. That would be the time I would give you. I understand you're busy people. but We're if coming on... round to your houses. When you book the tickets, we got your address. <laughs> I'm gonna come round with a 10-minute short exam. That's why you should not give your data to anybody. Especially Sarah Pascoe, because she's got some questionable morals. Um, As you will see when you you read the book, she wants to do studies on people that are not right. Um, All I want to do, if you're going to do a proper scientific study, you have to get some twins as soon as they're
2: born, and you need to get um, two separate islands... And your, your controls have to obviously be the same, but if you want to actually see the effect of like, say for instance, pornography on people, how it maybe affects their ideas of women or their sex lives, their erectile function, you give one of the islands the internet and the other one, they just do crochet. And I come and study them and then they're in their
1: 50s. What's unethical about that? <laughs> and this is why Sarah Pascoe cannot be prime minister. Because Gibraltar would just be full of twin boys. Separated from their brothers, weeping, going, "Where's Thomas? Where's Andrew?" They don't know. They were, they, were, they were split
2: at birth. That's why they were
1: awful. Th- they don't even know they're a twin. They oh, find out. They found out at the
2: end when I go. Pornography ruined you. Also, <laughs> you've got <laughs> so a brother.
1: Meet your brother Kevin. <laughs> yeah, here's your brother Sanjeev. Uh, But the book, what I love about the book is uh, it's very, very, very funny, and I kind of kept on laughing out loud um, when I was reading it, but it's extremely, extremely uh, vivid with ideas and throbbing with ideas, I would go so far as to say. Fizzing. I love the word throbbing
2: and fizzing.
1: Mm. The other day I did
2: an interview, and um, the interviewer mentioned how often I said fizzy in the interview. I had five coffees.
1: Oh. It was
2: almost the only word I could say. I, c- I couldn't tell her I was having a panic attack. So I
1: just, <laughs> I had to pretend I'm just fizzing. <laughs> just fizzing with ideas. Well, you'd obviously drunk a lot of coffee when you, read, when you wrote this. Oh, you have to. Is- Every line. It- <laughs> Back to the kettle. Yes, no, really, because it is full of brilliant ideas. What I love about it most is how you talk us through your intellectual and uh, journey and your own shedding off of ideas that you had when you were younger. And some of those ideas are, I suppose, the trajectory is similar to that of intersectional feminism around pornography, uh, sex workers. We've all learned a lot about that over the last couple of years. And you've really talked about your own... when your feelings are at odds with what you can see as rational. And if a sex worker is saying, this is a great living for me, And you can still have strong feelings about that, but you you understand you need to rationalise beyond those feelings. And you talk about that kind of thing a lot in here, how you're moving towards a better understanding of how the world works, especially where the intersections of sex, power, money lie. So one thing I wanted to open with is that uh, you talk about pornography being relative, and you, you found a very interesting example through Victorians stumbling across the ruins of Pompeii, completely intact.
2: Yeah, so that's when the word pornography began to be used, which was something I didn't know until I started researching the history of pornography. Um, The definitions of pornography and what it is all change are very, very subjective. And to some people, erotica is a completely different thing. But when Pompeii was discovered um, by Victorians, they thought that every single house was a brothel, because all of the houses had pictures or paintings, statues or ceramics that they were considered graphically sexual. And um, they weren't understood as what they are now understood to be, which is depictions of a trade of power. Some of them were very comedic at the time, apparently, but they just assumed, oh, everyone was just banging And then they made a secret museum where they put all of the dirty artifacts inside so that um, no women would accidentally see them and die. Um,
1: That idea that we, we impose on pornography... Uh, we would pose on an image what is pornography, what is erotica, what is, for our time, simply normal. So you're, you know, you've know, you pointed out in the book that, you know, in some places, you know, us just in our summer tank top might be seen as pornography. Yeah, it's like
2: the idea of what's gratuitous is what's very different between individuals and then between cultures. And then also... What's interesting for me is that you don't have to be aroused by something to find it pornographic, or if you are aroused by something which is, has no intentions to arouse you, does that, does that then become pornography? Because people masturbate to things that aren't technically porn. You said in the book that your friend Tom, he was trying not to use pornography, so he just started ranking to people's Facebook holiday photos.
1: <laughs> and so I named him in my book. <laughs> Are they now porn? That's the, so I've got two questions, does that make the bikini shots of his friends porn? Yeah. And the second question I've got is, is your friend Tom my husband, Tom Selinsky? <laughs> that's th- why I asked you to do this, don't yeah, you? Because <laughs> that's information I'm going to need. <laughs> it did occur to me, I was thinking surely Tom wouldn't have told Sarah Pascoe oh, that was if just, he it. It was
2: just your holiday photos. He's <laughs> actually a very romantic man. <laughs> Yeah, it's just like you on the plane, <laughs> you in a casino. You're both fully dressed at all times. I don't know why he was telling me.
1: <laughs> when the novel came out, it was called The Novel because it was, in fact, novel. Oh my goodness, how absurd, how new. They made and it up. It, it was, yes, yeah. and, some, and, and young women were seen to be wasting their time mm. and hurting their brains. Mm by reading the novel and Becoming not... Becoming
2: unmarriageable. Anna Arrowsmith, on a, a podcast called Intelligence Squared, they did a debate about pornography in 2011. I think that the title of the debate was that pornography is great for society and it makes people more sexually expressive. Something like that. And so it had two people against it and two people for the motion. And she was arguing that Victorians talked about male masturbation the way we talk about young men with pornography. Right. That the fear was that they would become withered and pale, unable to communicate, and so in their rooms and they just thought that from just from touching themselves and she said it's exactly the same language that we oh, use again with interesting. the same fear yes
1: and do you think the Victorians were doing studies like you were when you sent out to all your friends on Facebook if you said a study that you said if, if, yes. if you're all the same age if you're around the same age as me yeah. when did pornography become available to you or when did you feel it became available to you when did you think to look for it on the internet because
2: I I knew I wasn't representative because I saw porn twice by accident before I wrote my book at 36 so I knew I wasn't I didn't want to write the book going apparently there's porn out there guys (laughs) (laughs) just want to warn you Apparently there'll be bums. There'll be bums there. <laughs> Don't boobs. say I didn't try. Um, so I so and I and I genuinely wanted to know. And again, because I think I'm such a uptight and also lectury friend no one told me that they were watching pornography like no one brought it up like oh, I'm going home to watch this so I'm really into this at the moment they wouldn't have dared and so that's why I did that ask people on Facebook like if you went to college with me did you know that that what was in computers did
1: you Did you know? <laughs> and loads in of there? them came back and said they did yes they some did. some of them didn't uh, your yes. friend that you name only is Aisling, so Ashling, so she didn't Ashling B. she's she's like me I think as well you, you both have an enormous sense of morality about the world and oh we'd be very quick to tell you I, when I, when I, <laughs> this is my favourite thing about Ashling. OK,
2: the thing about Ashling is she's the most helpful, kind, generous woman. I think you get that from her comedy and everything anyway. She's astonishing. But the first time I met her, she was on the floor showing a pregnant woman how to give birth. <laughs> wow.
1: But even though she has not herself given birth. That's how
2: helpful she is. She doesn't need to have any experience to go, what you need to do. (laughs) She was like, they'll try and put you on your back, say no.
1: (laughs) Where you need to be. Had she been to a class just in case? I don't know. I've never asked her how she knew or if it was true. (laughs) She may have just been trying to be helpful. She was just showing a heavily pregnant woman (laughs) how to do it. How to give birth. Uh, But the way you first saw porn, I thought it was one of the most extraordinary stories I'd ever heard, and I was surprised you'd never told me before. Oh, really? You were working as a backing singer for Robbie Williams' dad.
2: Yeah, that was my career highlight. So um, (laughs) when I was... So this would have been... I, I had a very... Do you know what? All I ever wanted... All I ever wanted when I was a young woman was to have, like, an interesting life. At 18, I worked at the Millennium Dome, which I didn't believe they were going to close, because it was too amazing, and then they did. And then after the Millennium Dome, I did all of these little jobs, and I had one job, I went down to haven't and so the train was quite expensive for an audition and I was supposed to be working and I was already starstruck by this in a hotel that used to be used as the set for Noel's house party. Wow. So I was like, oh, of course, get me, get me on the train. Yeah, i um, And when yeah. I was in the room, they said, we think you're too good for the show at the building that used to be the set of Noel's house party. <gasps> Have you heard of a man called Robbie Williams's dad? Uh, <laughs> And I said, I haven't, but I'm very excited. And they said, Robbie went there on New Year's Eve Uh, last year. Stop it. I know. So I was just like, so I went to do this job and with Robbie Williams' dad, Pete, who's really a nice man. It's a very poorly paid job. So you lived in a hotel, you walked around the hotel, you did these shows for, um, it was very, very old people. They're called Warner Holidays. Uh, very old. It's for people who are very old and would like to go on a cruise, but they don't like boats. So <laughs> they go to these ones, like, it's, this was in Nottingham. And um, Robbie Williams' dad was the star of the show, and I would just come in if he couldn't hit a high note. Like, I just stood at the back doing this, and they were like, Oh, he's, he used to smoke a lot. And they'd be like, Viva Las Vegas! Like that. And um, then one night, party in the hotel room, and um, people were smoking drugs, and I don't smoke drugs. People were smoking drugs, and I was really concentrating on that, like how to seem cool. While well, other people are smoking drugs, but also, no, but what do you do when they go, Do you want to puff Pasco? Tell me how to deal with this. Do you want
1: to puff Pasco? Um, uh, I've been doing a bit too much, so I'm off it for a while. That's cool. Is that what you say? That's how you stay stay cool and say no to drugs.
2: (gasps) This is amazing
1: life Mm. advice.
2: Anyway, I was I was so busy trying to like look like I was having a nice time, but avoid any joints. And um, someone changed the TV onto pornography, and I just heard squelching noises. And um, I didn't know, definitely didn't know, it was the kind of thing people put on at parties. I now know it isn't, is it? Like, that, but but I was I, but I was um, yeah, just I was nineteen. This is going to be life, isn't it? Smoking joints and watching porn are ah. <laughs> two worst things. <laughs> So anyway, I saw a split second of it, just standard hardcore porn. It was a penis in a vagina and a close-up, but I'd never seen a close-up of a vagina and a penis before, and so to me, it was brutal. You know, like when someone has a picture of like an animal in an abattoir with no skin on? That was 2001, September the 10th. Yes, the next day, September the 11th happened and I was at the hotel and, um, and it was all these planes going into buildings and it all got mixed together in my head in this like really Freudian way and um, I blamed pornography <laughs> for
1: 9-11. I mean, what is the sexy angle of sex though then? If it's not the vagina and the penis and it's not the man bearing down on you? Oh no, what,
2: what, I mean...
1: What is I'm it? Sure, well, is Is there one?
2: Yes. Um, I, look, <laughs> so, so, so here's the thing that where it becomes we're really treading into we are now going into what I would call like sticky territory. Not oh, like all puns no, intended. No, yeah. look, because because the thing is, the minute you start to say this is true of cis men or this is true of men um, or women, you're not actually ever talking for an individual. In terms of the evolution of arousal, so one of the things I one of my questions before I started writing the book. Uh, men watch more porn than women. And um, that's across every country where they have the internet. Um, so pretty much every culture in the world. And there's quite a big disparity. And there are lots of other studies. There's studies about masturbation. There's study about masturbation in teenagers. Masturbation with priests and nuns. There's all of these different ones, but they always find this disparity between men and women, which doesn't talk to any individual. And what you do, but in general women are all lumped together the thing that felt most true for me, and so trying to work out this thing, so why? Because <laughs> I don't believe that men are, just have a higher sex drive because that actually wouldn't make any evolutionary
1: sense. Mm. And we know it's not true from our friends because the amount of female friends I have who complain
2: with partners who that, who don't, that their boyfriends their yeah.
1: husbands don't want to have enough sex or, yes. no, or sex with them. Yes.
2: Um, but again, it's a cultural story because I think we've, we've seen so much of men being frustrated in a long-term relationship, and then we're only just starting to really see the female side of heterosexuals. But so, in terms of um, being instantly attracted by what you see, so the idea of being like visually aroused by pornography, this is an evolutionary argument, not science, by the way, not respect it, I mean, take it or leave it. The idea is that in terms of us 1,000, 2,000, 5,000 years ago living as hunter-gatherers, for a male to get instantly aroused by seeing sex happening, and obviously that would only be because sex is happening. Ah! The idea that he would be aroused by that is quite useful in terms of him spreading his genes because it might mean he is about to have sex. So the idea that he would just be aroused by seeing penetration or something else sexual makes complete sense. The theory that for the female body It might not be the same quick response of like, woohoo, I might be about to have sex, would be because for the whole of our evolution, there are situations that would have been so dangerous for us. And I know that sounds shit. I'm not saying that they weren't, we didn't have ancestors that walked into a clearing and went, they're having sex, yes, like, and thought it was amazing and brilliant. But in our evolution, strange men. Or the reason that we have sex in private is for a large reason, so that other men don't see it and think they
1: can join in. Mm.
2: Because like, then it your would be so sperm dangerous.
1: will be mm. my sperm. It'll be fine. No. Um, yes. One sperm, uh, the man, the man sperm, yes. uh, the, the cis man sperm won't yes. uh, be beaten out by other sperm. Yes. So he wants it to be private. So that's there's the an thing. evolutionary advantage yes. of, to the men who. So, so with sperm,
2: sperm competition. But the other thing is, for a female, in our again, it's all evolutionary theory. But it's not just about who impregnates you. Uh, our young take a huge amount of caring for, and that's why a male who believes it is his child is far more useful to you in evolutionary terms than a group of men who don't know.
1: You talk about private time in your book, and you talk oh, yeah. about the anti-fap movement. I'd never heard of this. Oh.
2: So it's a, it's a movement, and it's, all, it's actually all connected to technology, and especially kind of internet porn. But it's a movement, and it's, they're all men. So FAP is the onomatopoeic term for male masturbation, according to them, I don't know.
1: Is that what it sounds like, FAP?
2: I asked somebody this, and then he did me such a vocal impression with his mouth of, like, a lubed hand oh. hitting the bottom of the body. Like, flop, flop, flop. flop. The term for women, because there is one for women as well, and it's like...
1: So that would be anti f- if you decided to give that up. No,
2: but there, are, and there, is, there is that. Anti- f- it's basically that, yeah. Some, there's, <laughs> some, there's some talk about that as well. But, so, but, but it's all connected with pornography and socialisation and dopamine. There's, there's been some really successful TED Talks about how we have a dopamine cycle in our brain and watching certain things. And it's, and it's not just pornography. It's things like playing a lot of computer games. Certain things might interfere with that cycle. They might lead to you feeling a bit kind of on a lower level, a bit bleak, uh, flat. Is the word I'm looking for. And some people do it for an amount of times. So they will say like 30 days, no masturbation, no pornography. And quite often what they find is that they will start to get very aroused all the time because yeah. it's something that's been needing quite, I guess especially with uh, hardcore pornography, quite uh, extreme triggers after a number of days or weeks, now I might just be like standing next to someone with a nice perfume. Or, I don't know, I just picked such a, like a nan example, like, oh, men don't appreciate nice perfume anymore. <laughs> Um, But but it might be quite a subtle thing. Mm. And then people feel like, oh, they're more in touch again with their sexuality. So for some people it's that, and for some people it's like, they will never watch porn ever again. And then it becomes the people who think they will never, ever masturbate ever again. Mm. And I think that's a very extreme thing. Mm. And and, and actually, masturbation is a very important part of male sexual health.
1: Mm. Yeah. Because of regenerating the sperm. Yes,
2: because sperm has a little um, life um, in your testicles. And um, basically, after like five to seven days, um, where you try to impregnate somebody with it, I'm not saying that that's your bag, but if it was, they would, be geriatric, um, so not very useful. And so in terms of sperm competition and our evolution, you're much better to have fresher sperm. So sometimes when somebody is in a new relationship or has met someone they fancy, they actually masturbate more, but it's about having fresh, vital sperm. Mm. And, and sperm also... This is what, actually, this is a really lovely fact. They're kind of um, dormant in the testicles. They have to wait until they get into body temperature, because obviously the testicles are outside of the body to keep the sperm slightly cooler. And then when they go inside a body, a vagina, then they wake up. That- <laughs> what is this?! <laughs> Like that was just nice yeah, to think of, isn't me, it? That
1: they're kept in the testicles as but, a cooling co- mechanism. But otherwise,
2: you'd t- if your testicles were inside your body, you'd have to wank constantly because they'd always be dead. They'd just be swimming around in you, and then by the time you've ejaculated them, useless. So, so that's why they're down there.
1: So do you think some men do have their sperm further inside of their body? Men like Harvey Weinstein and Louis C.K., and that's why they have to wank so constantly. Don't try
2: and make me look like I'm an apologist. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's it for this episode. Make sure you subscribe to the Southbank Centre Books Podcast in all the usual places.
1: For more information about upcoming events, go to southbankcentre.co.uk or look us up on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram.